to the International Church of Vilnius. It's good to be with you this morning, and uh, I look forward to singing and worshiping with you. Our first hymn this morning is hymn number 51, We Will Glorify. Hymn number 51, if you stand and sing, please. confessing together each Sunday because our God is faithful to forgive. Our God is faithful to show compassion and mercy. Friends in Christ, let us draw near to God our Father with a true heart to confess our sins and ask Him in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to forgive us. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against You in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We're truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name, amen. May the Father of all mercies cleanse us from our sins and restore us in his image to the praise and glory of his name. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Blessed is the Lord, for he has heard the voice of our prayer. Therefore shall our heart stands for joy, and in our song we will praise our God. The responsive reading this morning comes from Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, 
I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Our second hymn this morning is hymn 350. Jesus, what a friend for sinners, hymn 350.
scripture reading. Our first reading comes from Isaiah 8. This is what the Lord says to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. Do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. He will be a holy place. For both Israel and Judah, he will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. Bind up this testimony of warning and seal up God's instruction among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. Here am I and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists, who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land when they are famished. They will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our gospel reading this morning comes from John 8. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am the one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, Where is your Father? You don't know me or my Father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put, yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Once more Jesus said to them, I am going away. You will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, Will he kill himself? Is that what he says? Where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am He. You will indeed die in your sins. 
Who are you? They asked. Just what I have been telling you from the beginning, Jesus replied, I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is trustworthy, and what I have heard from him I tell the world. They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, many believed in him. This is the gospel of Christ. Praise to you, O Christ. And our sermon reading comes from 2 Corinthians 7. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this, we are encouraged. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We've looked at several passages in First and Second Corinthians. We know the context is Paul writing a church that is in the midst of division, debate, comparison, immaturity, immorality. And he's writing about specific sins following up on his first letter. And we'll get in more into that in a moment. But does your sin bring you joy? Or does it cause you sorrow? When you go against God in your decisions, does it cause you joy, the act of doing it? Or does it bring you sorrow? Because God wants to use our sin to lead us to Him, to develop us. And when we have faithful friends, it brings sorrow, but the good kind. And godly sorrow is designed to bring us life. Okay, let me repeat that. God wants to use our sin to lead us to Him, to develop us as Christians. And when we have faithful friends, it will bring us sorrow, but the good kind. And godly sorrow is designed to bring life. In verse 9, he says, Paul's telling them, 
He originally wrote to them about their sinful ways, and these are related to, as I said, their immaturity, their divisions, their debates, their competition, their, their immorality. But he says he's happy. He says he's happy not because it caused them sorrow, but because their sorrow led to repentance. Here the idea of sorrow is pain or grief. A devastation by hearing certain words that that may be uncomfortable to hear in this case it's about their private life and their public life uh, this word that's translated sorrow here is 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 used with childbirth in the Bible that it's that it's it's bringing about something you could you could say in the context of the word but it's primarily about going through something difficult and it just so happens in childbirth that it brings joy and life and goodness afterwards he's happy not because it caused them sorrow meaning that he didn't have his intention wasn't to make them upset but he's happy because what caused them to be upset and to experience pain and grief led to their repentance now first and foremost God wants us to use our sin to lead us to him to develop us Notice that he says, you know, when I told you about your sin, it wasn't, it wasn't Paul condemning them. It wasn't Paul giving them the final judgment on their life. As Christians, I said earlier, we have the great opportunity to confess because unlike other gods, our God, re, he looks at our sin and he sees Jesus. He forgives us based on our faith. We're all going to sin. And the beauty of Christianity is when we do sin, not when we're actively sinning, but when we make mistakes and when we fall short and when we act in anger and when we act on our emotions. Or maybe even in a time of confusion or temptation, we actively go against God. When that happens, our sorrow can lead us to repentance our conscience, what we feel on the inside. He says, they became sorrowful as God intended. Meaning that God uses our sorrow, uses our conscience, not to make us feel bad in and of itself, but to lead us to Him. When we feel guilty, when we feel sorrow for what we've done, our conscience is leading us to Him. That's His design. It's His intention to lead us to Him, not further away. God wants to use our sin to lead us to Him, to develop us. And our sin should cause us pain. Our conscience is a good thing, and it should be developed as a muscle that becomes more sensitive to sin, not less sensitive. People who have a dulled conscience have become so used to sinning that it doesn't, it's no longer a big deal. There's no longer a reaction. They've developed a tolerance, a weakening of the conscience. But as we become more dependent on God and more aware of our sin, our conscience becomes more powerful. It starts to detect little ways that our lives aren't holy. Not so that we'll be judged, but so that we can change and be different. 
Christianity is unique in this regard. Our sorrow leads us to God. Our sin, which is unfortunate and not praised, but it can be used to bring us back to Him. They became sorrowful as God intended. And were not harmed in any way by Paul. Or, or in other words, you could say they didn't suffer loss at the hands of Paul. He's talking about coming to them as their spiritual leader to confront them, causing some more pain and, and than his letter caused. I said something about conscience that should be developed like a muscle, and it makes me think, it, it always makes me think of running, the psychology of running. Our holiness does not make us more surprised that we sin, but more aware when we do. And, and this is, for me, is related to running in, in a very significant way. But before, before we get into that, our holiness does not make us more surprised that we sin. Some people think that when they grow in holiness and they get a better grasp on their behavior and start to live in a way that is more upstanding for a Christian, sometimes in their pride, they can be surprised that they sin. They get so used to doing the right things that they forget that they once made mistakes and it surprises them. This is coming from arrogance. But our holiness doesn't make us more surprised that we sin when we do, but it, it should make us more, more aware when we sin. Our holiness shouldn't make us feel so used to not sinning that we're surprised by it, but it should make us more sensitive to sin and the devastation of it. The reason why I think that this is related to running is because the psychology of running is almost as important as the physical aspect of it. That when I started running years ago, I could see gains really quickly. You start to run faster, you start to run longer, and you think, and many people think, well, when I get, when I get better trained and I, get, I start to develop, that means it'll make it easier. It'll make it easier to run because I'm stronger and I'm faster have more endurance. But what I noticed in a friend that told me, he said, if you want to be a better runner, it's always going to be hard. You may get stronger, you may get more endurance, but as you speed up and run faster, you're always going to feel the limitations of where you are. In other words, when in order for me to experience development as a runner, I have to be more aware of the pain and the sorrow it causes to run fast. And most importantly, is that when you start out in anything, whether it's running or any, any hobby or any lesson or maybe it's a class or something that you're learning, you're always going, there's always going to be initial uh, gains that you'll see. And the more and more you stay in something, especially in the Christian life, the harder it is for those gains to come. When I started running, I, I remember there was a, in the UK, there's this wonderful organization called Park Run. And in 
massive parks all across the UK, they have a weekly 5K, a five-kilometer um, run. And I used to do this all the time. In 2015, I, I probably ran 30 or 45 Ks. And they keep your number and your time, and, and, and they post it on the Internet, and they let you know about your progress. And I noticed that as I got faster and faster and faster, I started to pay attention to seconds. Whereas when I started, I was like, oh, I want to shave a minute off my time. And as I began to grow and grow and grow, I began to focus on the minutia of what I was doing. And it's the same way with Christianity. You may have been a terrible sinner that was in, in very obvious sins that, that, that you feel sorry for now. And maybe you've had a drastic change. But in order for you to get to where you are now to holiness... It's not going to be some massive jump, but rather a small incremental growth. As you become more holy, we're not to be surprised that we sin, but more aware when we do. Meaning that the more holy we get, the more like Christ we get, the little things are what's going to become more noticeable for us. When I run, I have to think, very, very specifically about my pain. Of course it's not good. Of course it doesn't feel good. But what it's developing in me is increasing my stamina, my speed, my ability to perform. It's the same here with godly sorrow. He says godly sorrow in verse 10, it brings repentance that leads to salvation. And it leaves no regret. No regret. Most of us focus, when we focus on our sin, we focus on the sorrow. In the same way, when I'm running, I'm focusing on the pain instead of what it's doing for me. Paul's saying, don't focus on the sorrow that the sin causes, but use the sorrow to lead you to life. Worldly sorrow brings death. Condemnation in this world brings darkness, focusing on endless sorrow to no purpose. We live in a broken world. We're going to see darkness. We're going to see sorrow all the time, and there is no hope in that. That's always going to be the case. There's always going to be an epidemic or, or a virus. There's always going to be violence. There's always going to be dispute, especially He's writing to a church that's experiencing all these things. There's always going to be sin, but if we focus on that, it will bring death. What should we be focusing on? Godly sorrow brings repentance, and it leads to salvation. It leads to change. When we have faithful friends, it will bring sorrow, but the good kind. God wants to use our friends, our godly friends, to bring temporary sorrow in our life, exposure to our sin, in order to lead us to Him. And Paul kind of did a dirty trick because he wrote them to test them. He wrote them to condemn them, to see how they would respond. He tells us this, that this was his strategy. In chapter 7, Paul explains that he wrote to them to see how they would react to this one particular person who was involved in this heinous sin of, of sleeping with his father's wife. 
And also we have these other issues that we mentioned earlier. But he sent, it, he sent them this letter to bring this out in them. And he says, look, notice the sequence of their response to being called out in their sin, starting in verse 11. He says, see what godly sorrow has produced in you. Earnestness. In other words, it gave them, it, it gave them haste. It gave them diligence, enthusiasm about what Paul was saying. They listened to Paul. They respected him. He was a godly friend and a faithful friend. And it brought them sorrow, but the good kind. It gave them haste and diligence to approach and to address the issue. He says, eagerness to clear yourselves. Apologia. A verbal, a reasoned defense. A thoughtful way to think through sin. What indignation, anger, anger of how sin affects us. To see this, the truth about what it does. He says, what, what fear. This word is related to fleeing. What alarm. I asked you earlier, does your sin bring you joy? That you secretly got away with it? Or does it bring you sorrow? Does it alarm you? Does it, fear, does it cause you to fear where it might lead if you were to be involved more in that? He says, what longing, what concern, what affection, what zeal or enthusiasm you had for this particular person. You went after them and you, you approached them because they were trapped in the midst of sin. And lastly, he says, what readiness to see justice done towards the offender. How quickly you wanted to see vengeance or vindication against this sin. And Paul says ultimately that it was successful how they, how they responded. He says, at every point you proved yourselves to be innocent in this. What's really, really strange here is that he says that they were innocent, but yet he wrote them initially because they weren't innocent. They were, they were in the midst of all kinds of issues, immature sins. Immorality, divisions, fighting, comparisons. Who's the best? Who's the greatest? And he calls them innocent. Christ calls you innocent when you use your sorrow for your sin to lead you back to Him. God wants to use your sorrow and your sin to lead you back to Him to develop you. And when you have faithful friends, it's going to bring you sorrow because they're going to tell you the truth about you. But it's the good kind. It's the kind that leads us back to God. And lastly, godly sorrow is designed to bring life. Notice he says that how they respond to his letter, which was very confrontational, he calls them innocent. That the way that they viewed their sin was a healthy thing, even though sin is not healthy and it's not good. He says in verse 12, he says, I wrote you before not because it was about the sinner or the injured party, but that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted to the apostles' teaching you were. It's the absolute same with God. So much, so much, so many ideas that argue against Christianity 
are from this perspective. That God is just obsessed with your sin and wants to condemn you and point things out. When even Paul admits in Romans that the law didn't come because it was supposed to bring righteousness. It was come, it was come to expose our sin like a true friend. The law came so that we would see as we stand before God that we are unrighteous, that we are unholy. He wants to use our sin and our, to bring us sorrow in order to lead us to him to develop us. And he wants to use each and every one of us in each other's lives. Not to bring sorrow because we like to judge each other, but in order to reveal sin and to move towards God. That's why we confess. That's why it's so important to have Christian friends, mature Christian friends. Paul said, I wrote you not, not about the sin or the injured parties, but that you could stand before God and be aware. It's the same thing with God. God brings difficult trials into your life to expose where you're weak. And if like me back in 2015, when I just wanted to get better at running so it would be easier, I missed the point of running. You don't get better at something to make it easier. You get better at something to push the edge, to take it to the next level. And it's the same thing with holiness. We don't get in habits of doing the right thing so we can just stop and relax and say how nice of Christians we are. We have to keep pushing and growing. And the way that we do that is to constantly be aware of what our sin is leading us to. Is it towards God or it is away from God? Are my friends leading me towards God or away from God? Or are they pushing me? They're challenging me. They're reminding me of the gospel. They don't bring it up because they like to, to nitpick and, and make, make fun of me, like so many friends do. They gently, like Jesus, come along and say, have you ever considered this part of your life that might need to be different? It's a loving way. It's a way that brings glory to God. It's a way that brings life. Ultimately, we're going to face trials. We're going to be in the midst of darkness and see sin and brokenness, and sorrow. But these trials, as many of these sermons the last few weeks have said, the trials reveal where we are. They reveal our hearts. When we are faced, when we're running and we want to quit, that's exactly when we find out what we're made of. And when we can push past those things through the power of God, not because of our own power, when we're faced with roadblocks and trials and failures and even a shame about our past, it's at that time that we grow, not to make it easier, but that we can endure more. When we face trials to test us, it grows us. Our sin reveals our hearts. And notice this at the end, verse 13, he says, By all this, all this mess that Paul is talking about, we're encouraged. 
were encouraged. Why? Because he's seen development. He's seen development in his own life, first of all. And he's seen development in their life, as messy as they are. Go back and read 1 Corinthians. They're messy. And you know what? We are too. All of us. Does your sin bring you joy, a secret satisfaction that's separated from your faith, or does it cause you great sorrow? God wants to use your sin to lead you to Him, to develop you. Don't waste the opportunity. I'm speaking to myself. Don't waste the opportunity when I sin to try to cover it up. Return, run to God. Use it as a way to develop yourself. And when we have faithful friends, it brings sorrow. They are, if they're good friends, they will approach us with truth. And it hurts. But it's the good kind. And lastly, God, godly sorrow is designed, it's his intention to bring life, not death. Do not get this confused. God is not wagging his finger at you over your sin because he likes to point out bad things. It is true that he points these things out, but it's designed to bring you life, not death. And if you feel shame, and if you feel small, it's not because of God, it's because of darkness. And it's because of yourself and the way that sin has affected your mind. God wants to say, you are an adopted son and daughter of Christ, if you are faithful. If you are a Christian, that is. It's totally different. How do we respond to this? I have two suggestions, two things that I've been thinking about. Thank God that sorrow and sin are not used. Thank God that sorrow and sin are used as a test and not for judgment for the faithful. For the non-faithful they are. Sorrow and sin are an indication of a future judgment and a future separation from God, unfortunately. But for the faithful, those who actually believe the gospel and live a life that is a reflection of that, God uses sorrow and sin as a test. Thank Him for that. Thank Him that there is no condemnation in Christ. And second, thank your friends who were brave enough to call you out lovingly. And if you don't have friends that are like that, find them. Find friends that point out your sin in a loving way and encourage you to be different. Because I'm, I, I'm afraid that most people have friends that just call out each other's sins to make them feel bad or to tease or to joke. If you don't have friends that are like that, find one in this church. It's funny how most friends find each other because, over something in common whether it's sports or politics or whatever, whatever it is. What if we made friends based on the commonality of we need faithful people to expose darkness in our life, 
not because we are sadistic and like to make fun of each other, but because we're on the same mission of growing and developing to be like Jesus. What an incredible thing to unite us. Even though we're different, we're all from different places for the most part. We have different interests. And from, on paper, we probably might not be friends. But what if we develop this type of network in this small body of people? It could change things. It could bring life. It could make us better runners in the spiritual life. Let's take a couple moments to think about this. Does sin bring you joy or cause you sorrow? How is God using your sin this week to lead you to Him? Who's a faithful friend that can bring you good, godly sorrow to help you grow and develop? And what situations in your life right now might be designed by God to bring you life? Even if it's bad. And lastly, let's take some time to thank God for His incredible mercy and His love for you. His dedication to you. Especially in the life of Jesus. Let's take some time. Praise God for his faithfulness. The Apostles' Creed is an ancient, very, very early statement of belief. That stood the test of time and has been something that Christians have always believed. When we stand and say this to each other, it's not a formality, but a reminder to ourselves and to each other what it is that we hope in. If you would stand with me, please, and recite this. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The peace of the Lord be with you always.
Lord Jesus, we, we thank you for your mercy and your compassion. We thank you that you intend for us good, that you don't condemn, that we're saved through you if we are trusting in your life and your death and your resurrection. Thank you that you care for us. Thank you that you've given us the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to empower our lives, to, to correct us, to convict us, to give our conscience a boost, to lead us. You're so good. God, give us more faith. Give us more awareness of that goodness. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God, please continue to work in our lives as you have been. Reveal these things in us. Reveal how we fall short. Give us a greater awareness, not so we'll feel bad, but that we'll use sorrow for over our sin to lead us to life, to make change to be different, to grow. God, we don't want a stagnant Christian life. We, don't, we aren't interested in rituals or traditions for the sake of tradition. We want to see life change. We want to see our world change. Give us strength and power to make those decisions, to make those changes. Give us a desire a greater desire for the result that allows us to enter into painful situations, sorrowful situations, where we're not afraid of those things anymore, but we want to see the results. Give us that perspective, God, through your spirit. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. And though, God, we see so much sorrow and darkness in the world that has no hope outside of you, we continue to pray for it. first thing that comes to mind are the wildfires, disasters, floods, but also public relationships, the lack of respect and dignity that people show each other on television, at work, in politics, even in the home. God, we pray that your spirit would pour out on the city of Vilnius and Lithuania, that people would not be afraid to confess, but that they would have the joy and the freedom that comes from acknowledging their sin that leads them to you. God, please move in this way. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. And we'll recite the prayer that Jesus taught us that's on the back of the handout. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, 
and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our last hymn this morning is uh, number 23, O Worship the King All Glorious Above. Hymn number 2-3, please, if you'd sing. which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Amen. Go in peace. Serve the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank mm-hmm. you.